Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Hematology. In this podcast, Professors Andrew Wei, Agnieszka Wierzbowska and Hert Osakopola share their perspectives on the impact of the 2022 guideline updates on diagnosis, classification and management of higher-risk myelodysplastic neoplasms, or MDS, and acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis and is provided by Touch IME. In our first interview, Professor Andrew Way gives an overview of the diagnostic process and differentiation between MDS and AML and how the 2022 guideline updates have impacted clinical practice. Hello, my name is Andrew Way and I'm a haematologist at the Walton Lazar Hall Institute of Medical Research and also the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Royal Melbourne Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. What are the presenting symptoms of MDS and AML? So patients can present with myelodysplastic syndrome or acute myeloid leukaemia in a variety of ways. Perhaps the most frequent presentation, however, is just a patient who uh, complains of fatigue and a routine blood test has identified an incidental cytopenia. We know that patients with mild reductions in their blood counts may have a variety of possible causes for this. And in some instances, uh, a cause is not found. And if the patient has had some molecular testing, uh, then this may help to distinguish between idiopathic cytopenia of undetermined significance and clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance. Obviously, a bone marrow examination is required to distinguish whether these cytopenias are either uh, idiopathic or related to a clone, but not pathologic of either myelodysplastic syndrome or acute myeloid leukemia. It's also important to get a history from the patient of any prior cytotoxic exposure because Uh, therapy-related AML, or what we call now acute myeloid leukemia with prior cytotoxic therapy, is one of the most rapidly growing uh, subgroups of AML, comprising almost 10% of newly diagnosed patients, according to a recent recent, uh, Swedish uh, study. And so we know that there's quite a lot of overlap between patients with myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia, and our diagnostic investigations are critical uh, to making this distinction. How is a diagnosis of MDS or AML achieved? When a patient presents with uh, symptoms or blood count reductions uh, potentially associated with uh, an underlying myeloid disorder, it's important to do a blood film first. And the blood film may give some indication of the presence of blast cells. Any indication of blast cells or where the cytopenia is unknown in terms of its origin should lead to the performance of a bone marrow examination. The bone marrow examination comprises two parts, the aspirate and the trephine. The aspirate obviously is helpful to enumerate the percentage of blasts, which will help in the classification of AML, and also the presence of dysplasia, which is relevant for myelodysplastic syndrome, and also the presence of ringed sideroblasts uh, if myelodysplastic syndrome is being entertained. 
The bone marrow aspirate is also important uh, for uh, other tests such as flow cytometry, which will characterize whether the blasts are myeloid or lymphoid in origin, and also for prognostication, which includes cytogenetic and also molecular uh, information. The molecular information is also critical uh, for uh, determining whether specific targeted therapies uh, are also appropriate, and this will be discussed later. Finally, the bone marrow trephine uh, is also important for determining whether fibrosis is present, uh, which is obviously relevant in terms of the etiology of the myeloid disorder. What we should understand is that uh, the myeloid disorders comprise a constellation of different overlapping uh, hematologic conditions, and the most important ones being MDS and AML, and the potential for some overlap uh, from a variety of different possibilities, including uh, the number of blasts, with new classifications suggesting that patients with 10 to 19% blasts have an MDS slash AML overlap uh, syndrome, and also uh, the possibility of molecular uh, abnormalities, which there is also extensive overlap between various myeloid conditions. And so classification can help us to try and refine what diagnosis the patient have, but we must be aware that these classification systems are imperfect and there are always going to be patients where they don't seem to have features which are completely distinct uh, of one particular myeloid condition uh, versus another. So in terms of categorization of myelodysplastic syndromes, uh, we know that there are two new recently published classifications by the World Health Organization and also the International Consensus Classification. These define uh, the, the disorders by a variety of parameters, including the proportion of blast cells in the bone marrow, with blast cells less than 5% in the bone marrow characterizing myelodysplastic syndromes uh, of low blast uh, levels. And these can be subcategorized into patients who have either DEL5Q uh, or SF3B1, uh, which is most commonly associated with ringed sideroblasts. Patients with higher levels of blasts, uh, 5 to 9% or 10 to 19%, uh, are then classified into a variety of other uh, myelodysplastic syndromes with higher blast levels. What I wanted to point out is that both the WHO and the ICC classifications now also allow the possibility of acute myeloid leukemia to be diagnosed in patients with less than 20% blasts. In the WHO classification, patients with AML and defining genetic abnormalities, uh, which comprise a variety of uh, molecular features distinctive of AML, can be categorized as AML, even with blast counts under 20%. Furthermore, with the ICC classification, there is now a category of patients who are called MDS slash AML, and these patients can have between 10 to 19% blasts and be considered either an MDS or an AML, depending on the clinical course and other parameters and enabling the patient to receive either MDS 
or AML-based therapies and recognizing that there is an overlap between these two conditions and not having 20% as a hard border between these two uh, conditions. With respect to the WHO 2022 uh, classification, there are a number of uh, defining genetic abnormalities uh, which will uh, allow a diagnosis of AML to be made even with less than 20% blasts and the most important ones being patients with uh, PML RAR alpha effusions, otherwise known as acute promyelocytic leukemia, and also the core binding factor abnormalities. And there are a whole variety of other um, uh, conditions, uh, including NPM1 mutation, which is not infrequently diagnosed with patients uh, with less than 20% blasts, and is important to identify because these patients should receive AML-type therapy rather than MDS-type uh, therapy. With the ICC classification, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, there are a variety of uh, uh, subgroups which are defined as MDS slash AML conditions, and these may be associated with uh, either p53 mutation, uh, myelodysplasia-related gene mutations, myelodysplasia-related cytogenetic abnormalities, and in the absence of these, uh, this condition can be called MDS slash AML not otherwise specified. And so we now need to recognize the possibility that patients with blast counts of between 10 to 19% uh, may either have MDS or AML or an overlap scenario, and this should be considered in the treatment uh, decision-making process. Why is it important to differentiate between MDS and AML? The distinction between MDS and AML is uh, part of classification, and that's important because clearly classification is an important part of determining what the patient might have, and also for how to categorise uh, what diagnoses we make uh, in the hospital for registry purposes. However, it's important to recognise that classification is just one part of uh, a number of different factors which are important for determining what the treatment is that the patient should receive. And so the MDS slash AML classification enables us to consider a patient uh, that has an excess of blasts clearly, but in terms of what treatment the patient receive, we should consider what clinical trials uh, might be available for the patient. And having the classification of MDS slash AML then enables us to consider whether it's most appropriate for the patient to receive an MDS-based trial or an AML-based trial based upon our clinical assessment rather than just because the patient has a blast count of above or below 20%. Second, the clinical course of the patient is really important. So we know there are patients who have 10% blasts uh, who remain very stable. And if you do a bone marrow in two or three months, they still have 10% blasts. And that's quite different to a patient that has, say, 15% blasts, where one month ago the blast count was only 3%. So the clinical course and what's happening to the patient's blood counts, whether they're stable or rapidly declining should also be considered in whether a more aggressive or less aggressive treatment should be considered. Drug access is also important. Uh, there are more drugs available for patients with AML at the moment than there are for MDS. And so again, this MDS slash AML uh, distinction allows the patient to be considered 
uh, for a wider variety of treatment options than they would if the blast count was uh, fixed at above or below 20%. And lastly, whether the patient is a transplant candidate, uh, clearly uh, not just whether the patient has MDS or, or AML, but a whole variety of other features, particularly uh, their symptoms, uh, their transfusion dependence or not, uh, their suitability for transplant from an age and comorbidity point of view, these are all factors which should be considered in what the treatment ultimately receives. So in conclusion, the final point I would like to make is that classification is just one part of the evaluation of the patient and does not in itself determine uh, what the patient should receive. The implications for clinical practice uh, of uh, the classification uh, is most uh, relevant in terms of the treatments which are available to the patient. And so having uh, this overlap syndrome of MDS and AML allows the patient to be considered for what might be best uh, for that particular uh, patient and expand the variety of treatment options uh, rather than just being limited to uh, patients with uh, more than 20% blasts. And the importance of the MDS-AML overlap syndrome is that uh, we know uh, from a variety of studies that the prognosis of these patients uh, is very similar uh, to patients with uh, AML and higher blast counts, and hence uh, the treatments uh, that are relevant for these patients uh, are similar to those that we use for AML. And the other implication is that allogeneic stem cell transplant uh, should be considered uh, for all patients uh, where the prognosis is felt to be uh, indi indicative of a poor outcome. And so not just patients with AML, but I think these days patients with MDS uh, should be actively considered uh, for transplant, even upfront transplant, particularly if the uh, condition is stable and the prognostic uh, score uh, either by IPSSR or IPSSM is high enough uh, to indicate that a transplant is required. And so the implication of that is that we should not just consider patients with MDS for palliative uh, and non-curative therapy, but that transplantation should be an active consideration in uh, every patient. Thank you for those interesting insights, Professor Wei. Now let's move on to our next topic with Professor Agnieszka Wyszbowska, who will discuss the pathophysiology of MDS and AML and how it relates to disease classification. Hello, uh, my name is Professor Agnieszka Wierzbowska and I am uh, head of the Department of Hematology of the Medical University of Lodz, Poland. What is the pathophysiology of MDS and AML and how is it linked to disease progression? Currently, we know very well that both MDS and AML are caused by the somatic mutations that accumulate in hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. And we also know very well that several driver gene mutations can cause clonal proliferation. However, most patients have combination of driver mutations and usually at one set of uh, MDS, the median number of uh, driver mutation is two to three per patient. And uh, there is evidence that RNA splicing and the DNA methylation mutations seem to occur um, uh, as very early event at MDS development. 
These mutations usually determine the clonal proliferation, the bone marrow hyperplasia, and also lead to ineffective hematopoiesis and peripheral blood cytopenia, which are very well-known features, clinical features of myelodysplastic syndromes. Uh, the enrichment of signaling gene mutations, uh, for example, like FLE3ITD or FLE3TKD, RAS family member mutations, is usually associated with the risk of transformation of low-risk MDS to higher-risk MDS, and also transformation of higher-risk MDS to AML. How is MDS classified according to the latest guidelines? Last year, two classifications, uh, uh, the WHO and ICC were published, and both systems include the MDS subtypes defined by genomic features, which are actually the same. Uh, in addition, the ICC includes also other conditions whose diagnosis requires uh, detailed molecular profiling. For example, the clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance. But I would say that the major, absolutely major difference is the approach to MDS with blast percentage between 10 to 19%. In WHO classification, this entity is renamed only as MDS with increased blasts, except for excess of blasts. In ICC, this entity was moved to a totally new category, MDS-AML, to recognize and also emphasize the fact that these cases lie on the border between MDS and AML uh, in terms of the biology, uh, prognosis, and these cases should be eligible for either MDS and AML clinical trials or other therapeutic approaches. So just this subclassification and the subtype MDS-AML um, underlies the continuum of the transformation of high-risk MDS into AML. How do the updated guidelines impact patient management in MDS? Uh, so we know that although some entities are identical between the WHO classification and ICC, uh, but still several significant differences exist. And at the last uh, ASH meeting, Plenty Abstract addressed the validation of current uh, diagnostic classification. And for example, the American group evaluated the outcomes in uh, 118 MDS patients treated between 2018 and 21, uh, which were reclassified according to WHO 2022 classification system. And the authors confirmed that defined mutational features defined in WHO classification were strongly associated with morphologically defined subgroups and also overall survival. So they confirmed that the WHO classification works. Uh, in another study, patients with newly diagnosed MDS based on WHO 2016 criteria were rediagnosed and reclassified according to uh, WHO 2022 guidelines. And it turns out that uh, 30 MDS patients in this group 
had nucleophosmin 1 mutation, which resulted in changing the diagnosis from MDS to AML, even though some of the patients had low-risk MDS earlier with less than 5% of blasts. So um, in the future, this diagnosis will implicate the more aggressive therapeutic approach. Uh, and right now, we don't know the long-term effect of this aggressive therapeutic approach, particularly for those patients with only few percentage of blasts. And the third analysis from the ASH, it is a big cohort of more than 2,000 patients with MDS who are reclassified according WHO 2022 and also current ICC classification. And this analysis showed that Molecularly defined entities like SF3B1, uh, 5Q deletion, or BLLP53 mutation are cl clearly um, unique. Uh, a blast count of 5% correlated better with outcome than the cutoff 10% of blasts. And probably it reflects better an accelerated phase in the disease biology. And of course, the final observation from the study was that MDS uh, with multi-lineage dysplasia uh, patients had significantly worse overall survival as compared to patients with single lineage dysplasia, which is in favor of ICC classification and confirms that the number of lineage involved with myelodysplasia matters. So it seems that still ideal classification do not exist. How do the 2022 guideline updates affect a diagnosis of AML? Uh, so I think that the using of uh, both classification in clinical practice will not affect the AML diagnosis uh, significantly. And for example, the data from the very elegant German retrospective study covering of more than uh, 1,400 patients with MDS or AML diagnosed according WHO 16, uh, who were classified according to current WHO and ICC classification. Uh, this data showed that less than 1% of additional AML diagnosis uh, could be made only. Uh, in WHO classification. In ICC group, about 10% of cases were upgraded from MDS to AML compared to the previous WHO classification, but it was mainly due to introduction of this new subgroup, new entity, MDS-AML. So, um, in my opinion, the introduction of MDS-AML category uh, increases, for example, chances to receive more intensive and potentially curative treatment for some MDS patients. Um, however, I think also that it's very important for clinicians and uh, also pathologists to be mindful of these key differences and their potential implications in the diagnosis and management of MDS and AML. Thank you, Professor Wierzbowska, for sharing your insights. Let's move on to our next topic, 
updated prognostic risk stratification and its impact on patient management, discussed by Professor Gert Ossikopola. Hello, my name is Gert Ossikopola. I am a hematologist located in uh, Amsterdam, working at the Amsterdam University Medical Center, and I have a special interest in acute myeloid leukemia and myelodysplastic syndromes. What are the recent updates in the IPSSM prognostic risk assessment for MDS and how do the IPSSM and IPSSR assessments compare? Well, as you know, myelodysplastic syndromes are a group of clonal hematopoietic stem cell disorders that's characterized by morphological dysplasia, ineffective hematopoiesis and peripheral blood cytopenias and all show a risk of progression to acute myeloid leukemia. And the disease management of MDS is really challenging due to heterogeneity in clinical courses and long-term outcomes. And therefore, risk classification is really important. Risk stratification for MDS was until recently mainly based on the IPSSR, which considers hematological parameters and cytogenetic abnormalities. And this scoring system has set for a decade a global standard for patient risk stratification, clinical trial design, correlative analysis and treatment recommendations. However, somatic gene mutations, which we now know are really important determinants of prognosis, are not used in the IPSSR. And in a recent developed clinical molecular prognostic model, IPSSM, pretreatment diagnostic samples from nearly 3,000 patients with MDS were profiled for mutations. Clinical and molecular variables were evaluated for associations with leukemia-free survival, leukemia transformation, and overall survival. And this model uses blood counts, meroblasts, the five IPSSR cytogenetic categories, while 16 main effect genes and 15 residual genes came out as important from the analysis of 152 tested genes. TP53 mutations, FLT3 mutations and MLL-PTD were strong predictors of adverse outcomes, highlighting the importance of screening for those mutations at diagnosis. And not all SF3B1 mutations were associated with favorable uh, outcomes. Unfavorable subsets could be distinguished on the basis of co-mutations. And using these parameters, the IPSM resulted in a unique risk score for individual patients. Ultimately, six IPSSM risk categories with prognostic differences could be distinguished varying from very low to very high. The IPSM score is personalized. It's a continuous score with a virtually unique value per patient. It's interpretable. A one unit increase in score results in a doubled risk. It's reproducible and provides a flexible, flexible and also a strategy to account for missing values. And from the continuous IPSM's risk score, a discrete six-category scheme is built, which will guide eligibility criteria for clinical trials and interpretation of correlative study results. Molecular testing is not yet routinely globally because of cost, infrastructure, and reimbursement considerations. And the IPSSM provides a focused list of 31 genes that can be prioritized as centers set up their routine diagnostic pipelines. And in the meantime, the ability of the IPSSM to handle missing data allows for the score to be applied in diagnostic settings that do not capture the complete list of genes in the model. 
And importantly, a patient's IPSM score can be calculated using the IPSSM web calculator. How does the use of IPSSM impact patient management? Well, compared with the IPSSR, the IPSSM resulted in improved prognostic accuracy across all long-term clinical endpoints, overall survival, leukemia-free survival, AML transformation. It can not only be applied for primary MDS, but is also applicable in secondary and therapy-related MDS. In the original study in which the IPSM module was developed, comparison with the IPSR showed that the IPSSM improved prognostic discrimination across all clinical endpoints and re-stratified 46% of patients. And at the latest ASH 2022, a number of studies were presented comparing IPSSR with IPSSM and all showing that around 40 to 45% of MDS cases were restratified. And data, these data were from single center studies, clinical trials, and also real world data. So in the majority, <coughs> the classifications was upgraded. Clinical consequences for treatment are highest when low-risk patients are reclassified as high-risk patients, but also downgrading from high to low risk is important in terms of treatment decision-making. And in one study presented at uh, the S2022 by Jurgi showed that 70% of re-stratifications had a potential impact on therapeutic choices. So it's completely clear that with the introduction of the IPSSM, we uh, get an improvement in uh, in, uh, stratification of, uh, of MDS patients. What recent updates have been made to the prognostic risk guidelines for AML? Well, a couple of uh, uh, updates of uh, new classification appeared in uh, very recently. For example, an international consensus classification of acute myeloid leukemia discussed by an expert panel hematologist was recently proposed, introducing a number of changes. And the changes were that the blast thresholds defining AML were changed. So AML with recurrent genetic abnormalities requires now more than 10% blast instead of 20% uh, blast. And also a new diagnostic entity was introduced called the MDS AML. And that is used for cases with 10 to 90% blast. And these were previously characterized as uh, MDS EB2. And also uh, uh, a number of new genetically defined entities were introduced. For example, the AML with the mutated uh, TP53, AML with myelodysplasia-related gene mutations, which are highly associated with secondary AML evolving from an antecedent hematologic neoplasm, and also AML with myelodysplasia-related cytogenetic abnormalities was among them. And this ICC was at the basis of the risk classification by ELN 2022 that was updated from the 2017 uh, classification. And it's good to realize that the ELN 2022 AML risk classification is based on data from intensively treated patients and may need modifications for less intensive therapies. And also uh, important to, uh, to uh, appreciate that initial risk assignment may change during the treatment course based on minimal residual disease analysis. 
So the major changes that were introduced in the update of the ELN classification were that all AMLs with a FLIT-free ITD are now categorized as intermediate risk, regardless of allelic ratio and MPM1 mutation status. And this was done because there were methodological issues with standardizing the FLIT-free ITD allelic ratio. Also, the role uh, of MRD for mutant MPM1 plays uh, an important uh, role. And the impact of the FLIT3 inhibitor-based therapy on FLIT3 ITD AML changed the prognosis for those uh, uh, patients. And another change was that AML with myelodysplasia-related uh, gene mutations are now in the adverse risk group. And these mutations include... <clears throat> for example, the ASXL1 and the B-core in ECA2 and so on. And previously, in the previous uh, classification, uh, the B-allelic uh, uh, CBP-alpha was uh, classified as a um, favorable um, acute myeloid leukemia. And this has now changed by uh, uh, the lysine zipper region of CBP-alpha, and that is now classified in the favorable risk group, irrespective of bioallelic or monoallelic mutations. And an important one change is also one that says that the presence of adverse risk cytogenetic abnormalities in MPM1 mutated AML are now classified as uh, adverse risk. So really uh, a lot of changes in these new updates uh, of uh, uh, the ELN classification. What is the impact of recent changes to the AML guidelines on patient care? Well, I think the most crucial question for initiating treatment in acute myeloid leukemia is whether a patient classifies for intensive uh, uh, treatment. Once decided for intensive chemotherapy, then the ICC and the ELN classification are important for treatment decisions. And the new classification upgraded or downgraded AML patients, which obviously has consequences for treatment uh, choices. The introduction of the MDS AML subgroups can also lead to AML treatment and inclusion in innovative uh, uh, trials. And the molecular profiling uh, uh, that is on the basis of the new classification has become extremely important. TP53 mutated AML should be induced with 3 plus 7 can be discussed given the very bad outcomes even after uh, allogeneic stem cell transportation in complete remission. We are waiting really for new, more effective treatments in this bad uh, disease. And then the introduction of MRD in risk profiling can also be helpful in informing uh, uh, to, to transplant or not to transplant, and also for the choice of the conditioning regimen and post-transplant and maintenance uh, strategy. So really the new classification has impact on uh, the treatment of uh, our acute myeloid leukemias in which the prognosis uh, during the last 10 years has improved enormously. Thank you, Professor Osakopola, for sharing your insights on the updated prognostic risk stratification for MDS and AML. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access additional content on this and related topics on touchhematology.com. Music